Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I am Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber and the Two Enthusiasts podcast. You can follow me at Asphalt underscore Rubber. And with me today is the very esteemed David Emmett. Uh, David Emmett, yes. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at, at Moto Matters. I was thrown off my game there for a little bit, being called esteemed. I've been called steamed before, but not esteemed. Steaming. Steaming. <laughs> and that voice you hear is the very attractive Neil Morrison. Yeah, voice for radio, not a face <laughs> for TV. Mm, ladies, just close your eyes and listen to the tall man speak. Yep, and you can find me on Twitter at Neil Morrison 87 All right, boys, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on the show again and to be with you here in Austin we had a great weekend um but before we get into oh yeah uh so we are recording directly at the circuit of America's while Suzuki's testing so if you hear a bike go by that's Alation Maverick doing some some hard work for the the Suzuki boys I think before we start talking about the Austin round we wanted to talk about the Argentinian round uh and obviously a lot happened there with the race format and with the tires so let's just uh jump right into it you you're shaking your head like you're ready to go so so tell me tell me your thoughts about the weekend uh, you were there obviously yeah it was a strange weekend i think uh philip island 2013 now has a, a rival for one of the strangest and most puzzling uh, race weekends in recent motor gp history um one which was confused and, and altered by um a perceived tire failure for scott redding in fp4 and then it, it had consequences for the rest of the weekend the the rest of the schedule um Michelin had um you know some some doubts um there in the side of caution and uh, withdrew that tire um initially um and then because of the weather um basically the the schedule on, on Sunday was was altered and basically because of the changeable conditions, the weather conditions changing um, by the hour, really, um, we saw that the the schedule was was being changed and altered right up until about two thirty p.m. and the the race was due to start at four. So it definitely had a very chaotic feel about it, and what we saw on track was almost as chaotic as what was going off it. Yeah, I, I went to speak to um, Mike Webb here after the race in Austin um, uh, to talk about it, and he said. You know, basically, they have to set a room. They they can't just uh, impose a schedule. They want to try and uh, work with the teams to make uh, to make the scheme for everyone. Uh, the you know, make the schedule work for everyone. But the trouble is, that means you're sitting in a room with 20 people. Uh, with well, yes, anyone anyone who's ever been to a, uh, a to who's been to a meeting with 20 people knows that you're going to hear 21 opinions. Uh, so actually, getting it done was a little bit difficult. And then they were issuing press releases after every every time they they agreed something, and then realizing, oh, okay, no, but what about in this case? Also, because the weather kept on changing, it was going to rain, then it wasn't going to rain. And what if we start wet, but then it dries out? And, but what if it's dry when we start, and then it gets wet? And yeah. what if it's wet in the second half or the first half? So it all got um, it all got a bit uh, a bit horribly uh, horribly messed up. But I mean, in the end, I think. It, it seems to me race direction had a they had a rough plan they knew what they were going to do basically it was going to be a two uh, a two part race but um, it was just the, the the fine details which needed out but I think issuing a press release every I think at one point it was about every fifteen minutes or thirty minutes it didn't they weren't exactly covering themselves in glory yeah it did definitely give a, an appearance that they were making it up as as uh, they went along but I think we can all agree that it was those were rather exceptional circumstances not just was uh, the track in an awful condition 
Um, it hadn't been used since um, the middle of December. A touring car race was the last time it was used competitively. Yeah, and apparently uh, not only was it not used since uh, uh, since December, but also it uh, served as the bivouac for a state of the Dakar. And so they'd had all of these bloody trucks, um, uh, all the Dakar, Dakar trucks actually parked on the track, uh, you know, covered in dirt and filth. So it was um, uh, not not usually what you do to prepare for a uh, uh, for a MotoGP round. Yeah, I think by the time that the track was you know gaining some semblance of normality, it was on, on on Saturday. Then obviously we had the the issue with the tire, and then overnight rain, and um, that changed the conditions again. We had a wet morning warm up and by the race by the time the race came around the tracking conditions were even worse I think um, Eugene Laverty said that he was having to actually wipe dirt off his visor because of the amount that was getting kicked up off the bikes in front of him um, and if you're trying to race a bike on full slicks um, you know at 100% from the very first lap with full tank of fuel that can be rather off-putting yeah exactly the the, the track actually reminded me of um, uh, Qatar uh, what maybe th- two three years ago while they were still building uh, right next to the track in Qatar in Lasale there is a massive uh, volleyball stadium uh, um, multi-purpose sports stadium and the uh, while they were building that you know there's all this construction material going on, on and off and there was just sand blood blowing over all of the time and so uh, the, the the first couple of nights every time someone got, got offline you would see them throwing up this sort of shower of dust it looked like the it looked like there was smoke all over the back uh, all over the back of the bike um uh, and that was the same thing was happening at Argentina. You could see when riders got offline, there was smoke coming off the back, and uh, or it looked like there was smoke coming, uh, you know, uh, coming up from behind the behind the bike. But it wasn't. It was just you know dust and dirt. Yeah, and we saw that in the race. Um, saw in practice. We saw um, several near moments for riders who, as soon as they got off the racing line, the bike would just kick up and try and throw them off. And we saw it in the race. Um, turn one was notorious, really. I think it claimed quite a few riders um, throughout the course of it. Um, Cal- Crutzo was one, Lorenz was another, I think Alicia Spargo was also um, picking him, picking himself and his bike up out of the, the gravel trap there. And that was just from getting offline ever so slightly yeah. and there being a wet patch that was just uh, millimetres or centimetres off the racing line. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a challenging, challenging conditions to race in. Yeah, I mean, turn one looked pretty terrible anyway because you had on the, on the very inside you had a puddle and then you had a dry section, which is where the bump was. And then on the outside of the bump, there was another puddle. So it was, you know, you, it was it was choose, pick your poison rather than any rather than anything else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, amid all that, we did see we did manage to see a fascinating race. Yeah, um, one it's that a fantastic was, race. I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was completely unpredictable. Um, I don't think any of us saw um, the, the kind of the podium shaping out the way it did. Um, at one point, we had Maverick Vinales in second place. He looked odds on to take his first MotoGP podium. Then we had. Andrea Davizioso and Ian only fighting for that. Um, we all kind of, I'm sure by now, know what happened there. And then in the end, we, we saw Eugene Laverty uh, coming home in fourth in place. In fourth place, you know, yeah. Just kind of benefiting from the, the mayhem that ensued uh, before him on the final lap and, and indeed the race. Um, so I think by the end, um, we were quite lucky that there was, a, there was a good race to somewhat take the attention away, take the focus away from what had happened just before that. I think if we had seen a race like Austin, um, which has just passed us there on Sunday, maybe you know the speculation or or the the attention, the focus of of, of us of the fans, you know, would have been more on uh, you know on race direction, yeah, and Michelin, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, especially on Michelin. But I mean, we'll 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 come to that later. But uh, yes, it would have been very different. 
Neil, since you, you've traveled to the race this this last round uh, to Argentina, and obviously a third time that MotoGP has been there, it's, no, it's quite it's quite difficult to to get to the track from from Buenos Aires, and obviously there's there's a bit of a logistical challenge. And each year we we hear from teams and journalists and even fans on on the struggles of going out there. Maybe do you, do you feel like this is a round that should be on the calendar still? Is it worth going through the troubles to get the the, the MotoGP circus there? Uh, and and expose it to the South American market, or or does it just need to have more time between it and Austin so everyone can get back? Because obviously we had a lot of trouble for people to make it back into to the United States on time for this round. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think logistically trying to uh, put in the the Argentine round ahead of this round here in Austin uh, wasn't the best idea. Um, it's it's far easier and less crucial in um, transporting everything back on time uh, to Europe if it. You know, if you imagine that the Argentine round was the third round of the season as it was in 2013 and 14, um, you know, transferring everything back to Europe, time is a lot less critical. Whereas if you're starting in Argentina and then moving everything into Austin and you only have three days to do that, then, you know, problems may arise. And with it being quite a remote location, yeah, problems did arise in the end. Um, I think it was a, it's a, it's a really fun GP to go to, really interesting, but a huge undertaking, um, you know, monetarily and logistically. Um, you know, you're you're taking the the long flight down to South America, the, the Buenos Aires, and then you have to take another two-hour flight up north um, to Tucumán, then another one-hour drive after that. Um, but I have to say, like, I mean, uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was a big undertaking. But once you're there, it's uh, it's like stepping back in time and imagining what uh, what Grand Prix in, in Spain, in Italy must have been like in the 1970s, I would say. What are they? What are, what's the attendance like? And what are the crowds like? Are, are there a lot of people there? Yeah, it was fairly busy. Um, I think the the official attendance for a race day was around 60,000. So it was a decent number. Um, but what you, what you also saw was um, high attendance through all, all three days. Yeah, people are really there for the for the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the kind of little little area up in the north of Argentina, like I mean, it's quite a poor area. You can just see um, on the drive from Tucumán, it's about an hour long drive from the airport into Termas de Rio Hondo. Um, and yeah, number of plates and the, just the the volume of people and the, the type of bikes and cars that you see coming into coming into the circuit suggests that guys, uh, families, people are coming from all over, you know, um, all over South America really to, to attend the race. Um, so yeah, I think um, obviously South America is a very important market, um, but I think logistically uh, having the race before uh, Austin, um, you know, was quite problematic. Yeah, but as I understand it, they changed it this year because of the problems they'd had previously uh, in previous years it's just that uh, going from here to somewhere to a very remote location it, it, it's a problem it's it, it, it's as simple as that you know it just it just causes a problem to uh, to get somewhere in such a short space of time yeah. but then uh, the, the teams want to have the they don't want to have an extra week between the races uh, because otherwise they'll have lots of you know a double transatlantic flight although from what I understand there were people flying back because of the flight problems there was a weather problem i think on the monday um uh, uh so some people got out in time and others didn't get out in time uh and the people who didn't get out in time ended up uh, going to a different 
uh, airport and then actually ended up flying back to there were people who flew flew from Argentina to Austin via Barcelona and via <laughs> London and via uh, Dusseldorf it was uh, it was uh, quite the trek there were people basically trickling into uh, into Austin on I think Thursday afternoon was the latest that I saw people actually getting in exactly when we arrived in Austin on, on Thursday we saw you know several teams still with the, the crates outside the garages unpacked they had just arrived people out of their team uniforms you know they lost luggage or you know they got mixed up along the way and yeah it had a slightly chaotic feel to it um, and I guess in some ways you could say like after what happened in Qatar with you know the whole Moto2 um, you know the whole fiasco of, of Moto2 race and then what happened in, in, in Argentina where it you had the impression that it was just being made up as it went along. Then this kind of chaos in between it didn't quite give the the professional image that um, that I'm sure the the series organisers and Dorna would like to project. And going back to the going back to the race, um, obviously we saw. Uh, Valentino I mean the first half of the race was really tight Marquez had uh, Valentino Rossi had the Ducatis Vinales with him um, but just in the second half of the race um Mark pulled away. Uh, Valentino said that he didn't have the didn't have the same feeling with his second bike. Did he explain afterwards? You know what what exactly the problem was with his second bike? Um, he was quite coy about uh, about stating um, what the problem was in the in the post race press conference. Um, but I saw in one of the, the the press releases that the team put out um, later that evening. It was something to do with the rear tire. Um, he felt that he couldn't brake in the same way. It didn't give the same stability going into the same into into the corners, and that was really holding them back. Um, and I mean, it was visible, I think, on Marquez's outlap. Um, his first flying lap after the, the enforced pit stop was his fastest and indeed, I think, the fastest of the race. And in that lap alone, I think he put something like 1.5, two seconds in into Rossi. And, you know, that was the race as good as over. Um, it would have been interesting because I think it was the it was the first time we've seen really this, this season um, Rossi running at the front and showing that he has the pace to run at the absolute front. Um, and we'll always be left wondering just what would have happened had there not been that pit stop. He believes, obviously, that he would have been... Uh, that he would have been strong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, afterwards he said that he believed he, you know he, he could have fought for the, uh, fought for the win if he hadn't have been had to had to change bikes. Mm. Uh, there was the Ducati thing, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I was kind of when that happened, I was I was wondering, you know, the fact that there was this whole. Um, I mean, in Austin, from just speaking to people, it, it became pretty apparent that Lorenzo was going to move to Ducati, and that was that was going to be pretty much a, that was a done deal. Maybe it hadn't been signed. Yeah, exa yeah, exactly. During the press conference um, uh, uh, in Argentina, someone sent me a text saying the deal is signed, uh, and and someone in a position to to know that so i mean there'd been rumors a little bit before but this was this was absolute confirmation that it was de that it was definitely going to going uh, going to happen so yeah, yeah. that must have um, spiced things up in the uh, uh, in the ducati garage yes absolutely yeah um i asked if it's it was about it on saturday asking you know does this kind of thing play in your mind during a race weekend whenever you know there seems to be someone coming into your team and you're basically fighting for the final position with your teammate and he kind of you know he shrugged it off and said that uh, um, it was no big issue. Um, he was only focusing on the best results that he can get, and you know his future is very much dependent on those results. Um, yeah, but it does it does leave you wondering. You know, does that lead to does that kind of um, does that atmosphere that environment lead to you know something 
happening like uh, like Ian O'Neill. Um I spoke to Paolo Giovanni after the race in Argentina and you know he was obviously insistent that that wasn't the factor but you would have to just say that you know Ian O'Neill crashed out of the first race after he had you know the pace to I think finish second at the very least um, you know there was a, a sense of desperation there where he's thinking that he needs to score as highly as he can as soon as possible in order to cement that uh, that spot for 2017 in that team I feel like we see this every year, especially when the contract signings are, are coming around and it's silly season or a rider's contract is up. But it always seems to be the rider who's, whose contract is on the line finds something extra to put on the track or is noticeably giving uh, a harder or giving more effort on the track than they were before. And I don't want to say they're not giving 100%, but there's there's something that changes in that process that always seems to come around right around contract season and whether that's you know a direct thing or a subconscious thing i think we could we can have up to conjecture but uh no it, it's definitely it's definitely a, a direct thing i mean um i remember last year because there was a certain amount of speculation about who's going to be doing what last year um uh talking to bradley smith and also talking to brad uh, to, to danny kent and they were both adamant that um all of the speculation that was going on it had no effect on them and they were right, you know, yeah. just focused on racing and then afterwards after they actually got their deal done it was yeah actually i was under quite a lot of stress and it was uh, <laughs> it, it was quite difficult and it, funny I mean, how that works out right yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly and uh, it's just it, it's not surprising it's just not surprising it is a very very stre- stressful uh, situation to uh, situation to be in so for me watching obviously the aftermath of of Andrea the Andreas coming together um I feel like that maybe could be changing something in the way Ducati is looking at its two riders David do you think do you think that that changed something on the way Ducati was leaning towards one rider or another on its future decision or is that decision too early to make or has it been already been made or what are your thoughts on that oh it, it's way too early to be it, it absolutely hasn't been uh, hasn't been made um the I mean obviously Lorenzo is going to be signing for Ducati. That means uh, uh, Ducati have a particular need as a second rider. The 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 the, the, the trick or the um, I think the, the thing to think about is what is what do Ducati want from that second rider? They have with with Lorenzo clearly he's the rider they're bringing in to win races and championships for them because they believe the bike is uh, the the bike is good enough. Um, the next question is do they take uh, Ian? How old is Ian? Only I think. 20. 526 yeah exactly so and and Jorge's 29 I think um so he could possibly be uh, be a replacement um do you want do you want uh, an older and a younger rider or do you want to keep Dovicioso uh, keep him as a uh, keep him as a replacement right or as a development rider because he's done a fantastic job developing the uh, the Ducati from the GP13 through to through to the GP16 um uh, perhaps they sack both of them and, and go for rinse and take a, 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 and take rinse you know that's that's also possible you know to start to prepare for the future look for a a young rider capable of, of um, taking over from Lorenzo after he either retires or is past his peak so yeah, although it is, I mean, you, you do get the impression that Ducati like to have an Italian rider in there. Yeah, um, yeah, abso- and, yeah, absolutely. You know, they do, they do have two very capable riders off uh, in that squad at the moment. Um, I think if Iannone had started the season like he started 2015 um, and showed the form that he had throughout most of 2015, I think we would have been looking at a situation where... Um, 
you know, Ian O'Neill would definitely be the favourite to to be to be joining Jorge in 2017 in that um, in that team. Uh, but as it you know, as it is, Ian O'Neill's kind of ridden in a kind of erratic way um, where some of that madness or craziness that we associated with him um, back in his you know 25 days um, in his earlier MotoGP days where he's slightly erratic fast but you know you can't really count on him to, to come back and, and get your result um, that, that's kind of worryingly resurfaced again um, and uh, you know that, that might just be playing playing into it I did, I did read something um, this, this may have just been a, a pure rumour but um, I, I did read something that Ian O'Neill was due to sign or there was due to be an announcement uh, in Austin over the weekend that Ian O'Neill was going to continue into 2017 with Ducati um, but that changed after what happened in Argentina so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, we might talk about this later on, but yeah, there are uh, right now there are so many rumors you can uh, just—it's almost fill in the blank. <laughs> well, why don't we take a break there, and when we come back, we'll talk about the transition into the uh, Austin round. Hi, this is David Emmett from Moto Matters. Uh, make sure you are following the Paddock Pass podcast on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, obviously uh, we're in Austin right now because the Austin GP just happened. So we'll transition from South America to North America and talk about um, what happened in uh this race weekend here in texas because obviously a lot happened and uh, a lot more discussion was going on with the tires as as we go to each track with the michelins we seem to be learning more and more about them and learning what we don't know about them yeah well obviously the 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 race in austin uh or the, sorry the race in argentina actually ended up having an effect on the tires here because uh at argentina the or after argentina uh, michelin decided that they weren't happy with the construction which they bought uh, to argentina and to austin and so they actually had new tires made on monday night and they shipped the soft tires in ready for thursday and then the medium tires in ready for um uh, ready for Friday, I think you spoke to Nicolas Goubert, uh, boss of um, uh, uh, boss of Michelin. Yeah, he, he was saying that um, they decided on, on the Saturday night of, of the race weekend in, in Argentina that um, that the rear tire um, they wanted just to err on, on the side of caution and be totally safe. Um, they had brought an emergency tire to Argentina that I think uh, Colin Edwards had tested um, before in Qatar, and they were sure that that was absolutely safe. Um, uh, so they decided that they were going to take that tire. Uh, and basically take the construction, which was stiffer than the one that they were using before, uh, and basically make it more rideable, more usable, um, give it more grip. So, as you say, um, it was all very late and last minute, and God knows how much they, how much money they spent trying to, to, to ship those tires across the Atlantic. Um, but they, they uh, eventually arrived in time for, um, yeah, I think it was Friday, the first batch came in, the soft batch, and then riders were able to use them then, and then Saturday they were able to use the, the, the hard of the, the two rear compounds so um, yeah and uh, you know the, the rear tire wasn't um, you know wasn't so much of an issue um, we kind of found when we were speaking to riders yesterday it was more the front um, yeah. and that was something that, um, that you know riders are still clearly um, getting used to yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, to go back to the rear tire, the rear tire. Um, uh, Danny Pedrosa said something very interesting. I think on uh, on the Saturday night, what do you, what Michelin appear to be doing is moving, making the rear the rear carcass, the construction of it stiffer and stiffer, um, as they're finding just to do that. 
because the way that heat gets into a tire is through movement um so it's actually being you know squashed uh, it, it's that move the moving around of the carcass the squashing into the rubber which actually generates a lot of heat um the so they're, what they're finding is that the the, the tyres, you know, the, 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 it's just generating more heat than expected. And so to counter that, what they're doing is making the construction stiffer and advising to put a little bit more um, uh, air pressure in the rear. Um, but if you do that with the same rubber, then what you get is a much... Uh, is a tyre which is too hard and doesn't heat up enough. So instead what they do is they make a stiffer construction and use a slightly softer rubber... Um, um, to achieve the same level of uh, the same level of feel and the same level of grip, uh, Danny Pedrosa was complaining, uh, was complaining about this because as the lightest rider on the grid, he is really struggling to actually get any heat into the tyres, and he's not allowed to uh, let uh, let air out of the tyre to lower the air pressure to actually get the uh, to, to help the rear, the the uh, help the tyre work uh, because they're all on they're all on a standard um, uh, yeah they're all on on uh, mish on manufacturer specified rear uh, rear pressure so it's it's a very tricky situation and also because you have Danny Pedrosa who's what 51 or 52 kilos and Loris Baz who's 80 whatever it is <laughs> absolutely yeah i think it's also worth noting that um uh, in argentina there were concerns um from a lot of the riders about the front tire and it was really only reading that had had that issue with the rear tire um i think uh, bradley smith said at the close of the the argentine grand prix that um he was wanting to bring it up with the safety commission um he felt that the the front tire had no grip whatsoever and was just a danger. We heard several riders, the two factory Ducatis, Kyle Crutchlow, just saying that uh, it felt like the front was on the verge of closing in every opportunity, or you know, every every corner. Um, and you know, and I think we saw that the front tire again in Austin was 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 critical. Um, we saw a few falls during the race. Um, from what you heard, David, do you think it was to do with the tires? Was it down to different circumstances, track conditions, or it, it was a it was a combination of factors? Still, the the, the nature of the Michelin front is still. Uh, such that it doesn't give you as much feedback as the uh, as the Bridgestone does uh, or used to. The Bridgestone used to, uh, to tell you well in advance, listen, we're getting to the limit, how about you back off a little bit? Whereas the Michelin is, you know, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, oh, you're on your face. Mm. Um, and that's that, that's a much more difficult uh, balance to, f- uh, to find. You, you can't afford... The one word that came up on Sunday after so many people crashed out was you cannot afford to make a mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, the most interesting comment for me was the fact that uh, Valentina Rossi said, "You know, it's not—it's not really the, the the fact that there's something wrong with these tyres. This is this is a normal tyre. This is the way that tyres are supposed to work. It's the it's the it's the Bridgestones which were the freakish exception, rather than the Michelin actually actually doing uh, actually doing uh, doing anything wrong." Yeah, exactly. I think uh, Rossi gave one of the comments today where someone asked him if he had the chance to save it just before he crashed out at turn two, I think it was, and he said the first he knew of the of the crash was when his bike was 300, yeah. 300 meters away from him in the in in the gravel trap, tumbling up into the air, um, you know, which basically showed that you know there was no warning there at all. Um, it was interesting what, what uh, a few riders were also saying. I think um, Loris Baz said one of the issues he thought was was contributing to riders crashing, um, not just here but in, in Argentina as well, was just because people are under pressure um people's rides are insecure as people you know riders are, are generally um 
uh, riding for, for 2017 and that's just putting a little bit more stress on them. Um, also Bradley Smith mentioned that there's a little bit of muscle memory in there whenever you see someone in, in front of you faster than you and you're trying to keep up with them you might just you know subconsciously revert to those breaking points that you're using. Yeah exactly I mean the, basically all of these riders have spent the last uh, most of them I mean most of them I think have been racing for perhaps five six years they've all spent five or six years racing on uh, on Bridgestone so they've done thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers uh, on Bridgestone tires and it's it, it's just so it, it, they're not even thinking about their break points they you know their body is breaking for them and that's what's causing the problem when they are concentrating and starting to concentrating on battle or battling or whatever but there was another interesting point which is also the the level of equipment is is a lot more uh, is a lot more level so it's a much fairer it's a much fairer fight you actually have more of a chance against the people around you and so perhaps you're going to take a little bit more risk you're going to push the boundaries just a little bit more uh, and you know that's from that takes you from you know the just within the safety uh, the, the 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 limit of the performance of the tires to right on the limit and and occasionally over and and off into the gravel yeah exactly um i mean there's so many factors to take into account but uh, again lorenzo said after the race in the in the press conference um that feeling with the with the front tire can just be a little tiny bit different with uh, with a fuel tank, with a half fu a full fuel tank, and you know an empty fuel tank, and you know little things like that, you know, play into it, and you have to take into account the whole. Uh, you have you have to take that into account the whole time. Um, when you have someone like Marquez who's racing off into the distance, and you're doing your level best to try and keep up with him, um, yeah, you can understand why you are basically, you know, it's a very very fine line. Yeah, and then there's then there's the electronics as well. Uh, the, the the fact that the electronics. Whereas previously, with the factory electronics, you had uh, a system in place which kept it was continuously calculating tire wear and automatically uh, adjusting uh, to the predicted level of uh, of tire wear and grip for the next uh, for the for the next lap. Um, that system is gone now. You have you know one fixed level for the first set of the race, and then you know another fixed level for the uh, for, for for the next part of the race if you if you remember to press your buttons in the right places and that's also got to have a uh, especially braking because they, i mean much of the electronics work especially for the past 5 or 6 years has all been on on engine braking and corner uh, corner entry and that has a really big effect on uh, on front tire wear as well so i suspect that, that this is also having an effect on uh, uh, on yeah on the ability to brake, on the ability to, uh, on the feel of the front, it's just changing. There's so many, there are so many variables at the moment that it's really hard to say, oh yeah, no, it's definitely a dodgy tire. Yeah, the, the, the Michelin's are rubbish. Yeah. Well, they might be, we don't know. There's so many different things that are changing that, 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 that you can't just say it's one, one thing. Exactly. And I think it's worth saying also that you look at what happened in Qatar, um, more or less the majority of the field had a lot of positive things to say about the Michelin tires at the end of the Qatar race. Um, Davizioso was talking about being able to apply the same brake pressure, um, going into the corner with maximum lean angle, things that you're able to do with the Bridgestones. And, you know, you could say that that was partly because there was a three-day test before that race. Um, Michelin had some time in between that race to 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 see what the riders needed um to to adapt to that um 
Argentina and Austin are very specific tracks, completely different different surfaces. Yeah, and, and also tracks which don't get a lot of use. I, yeah. For example, Argentina, I was told that uh, the uh, uh, the Argentinian National Championship asked to do a round at the at Termas, and the circuit turned them down. Said they that you know they they, they couldn't do it, which is uh, a long time ago. It used to be compulsory for uh, to have a race before the the week or two weeks before um, uh, before the Grand, Grand Prix turned up. Sure. Um, so yeah, here also another track which doesn't see an awful lot of uh, yeah. uh, of use outside of uh, F1 and MotoGP. And Michelin have no data here at all. Yeah. That's a huge part of it, right? I mean, yeah. we're we're just now getting to races or to racetracks where we haven't had testing, where we haven't obviously no one's raced here before on the Michelins. I feel like the real test of how good the Michelin tire is going to be is probably going to be in a year's time when we start coming yeah. back to races or racetracks for the first time again and and being able to have an apples to apples comparison. Yeah, I mean, Jerez, uh, uh, I think is going to be interesting because um, for a start, uh, Michelin have got uh, decades of data from uh, when they raced in 500s and MotoGP before the spec tyre came. Uh, they also have data from uh, the test, which uh, the, the testing which the test rider has done there. They've also has to have data from the winter test mm. when I think uh, Honda, Honda and Ducati were, were, were testing the and Aprilia. Well, so there was a whole bunch of riders there um, uh, actually testing, and then I. Th- Think I seem to recall that uh, Aprilia and Ducati also did uh, another test there with the new generation of front tire, which we're now using. Yeah, with uh, Piro and um, Demelio, I think. Yeah, the, the yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So those two, um, I mean, they really they, they, they have much, much more uh, data ready for Jerez than they've, than they've had for um, even these these last three races. Absolutely. Well, you know, obviously, the reason we're spilling a lot of ink or pixels, as it were, over uh, tires, uh, especially in Austin, is because of the number of crashes that we've seen uh, carrying um, during the races. Austin obviously was shaped by uh, a lot of crashes. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on how that's affecting the championship going forward? Uh, yeah, I think it's 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 affecting it, definitely. It's, um, it, it's quite crazy when... Um, I think David, you were telling me this morning that only seven riders have finished all three races. Yeah, um, you know, which is which is quite a quite a stat. And one of those is Mark Marquez. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and Mark Marquez is really, I think, Marquez Espargaro um, are really the the only two guys of the leading men that um, that you know that you um, you think will be in the kind of upper reaches of the championship come the end of the year. Um, I think that it shows that just it's going to be quite unpredictable. It's going to be quite messy in places. Um, we can't really take anything for granted uh, I was looking back earlier this morning um, the two movie star Yamahas Lorenzo and Rossi I think it had five race crashes between them um, from 2013 through 2015 so over three years just five crashes for for both riders and already both of them have had one DNF each you know making a small mistake and you know having ma- massive consequences yeah and oh, seeing the way that Marquez was riding it uh, uh, riding around I mean he's absolutely majestic around uh, around the yeah. circuit of the, of the Americas there's just no stopping him but uh, he's absolutely on the limit uh, and he's absolutely pushing the limit of what the bike is capable of and w- when we get to Mugello or Barcelona or something like that you've got to um, someone's going to make a lot of money with a side bet that he falls off yeah yeah uh, several riders in Argentina on the Saturday um, were saying that 
they couldn't imagine Marquez completing a full race distance, um, you know, just because they had seen him on track and they saw how, how much he was pushing that front, how, how hard he was pushing. Um, and, you know, he is, he's riding majestically. He's riding really, really well. Um, but I have to, th- I, have, I really think that yesterday, Lorenzo's performance showed that, you know, that silly error aside in Argentina, I think, you know, he is going to be really strong now going into this uh, succession of races that he dominated last year. Um, Rossi's fall yesterday, I think, I think was was quite uh, you know uh, quite a big impact. He's already you know quite quite far back, but you know it's still very early days. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because he, um, I didn't go to his, I didn't go to his debrief, but he said uh, he also he had a clutch problem off the, which, line. Uh, off the line, which meant you know it put him back a little bit. He was having to push uh, just that little bit further, and that uh, uh, turn one, turn two section. I mean, it's I, I love going up to stand there because it's such a sketchy. Challenging, difficult pace. A pace you you're breaking very, very hard up a very, very steep hill, and then you've got to sort of you come over the crest and you've got to sort of turn the bike back down downhill again, and then you've got this really fast sweeping uh, right hander uh, off camber downhill. Uh, it, it, it's basically I was standing up there with John Laverty, um, uh, the ex racer and um, ma- manager for Eugene, and he was he was just saying. As they were going, as they were going through, oh yeah, pushing the front, pushing the front, pushing the front. He's okay, pushing the front, pushing <laughs> the front, because the, it's just. He said, you can see it in the in the body language. If you like, the, the, you could see them pushing the handlebars away from them desperately, almost trying to turn the bike with their head. Yeah, yeah. If you know, if I. If ever there was a corner that the higher power, a higher power had sent down, uh, you know, from somewhere above to test the Michelin front tire, it was probably that turn. Yeah, abso- ab- absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> there are there aren't there aren't very many which which would be worse for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think you know when you saw you, we've seen um, you know only crash out twice, we've seen Crutchlow crash out three times. Um, you know there is a chance for for guys on satellite Ducatis, for instance, um, satellite Yamahas to really I think score good points consistently um, and and finish quite high up the championship table uh, yes as long as they uh, as long as they stay on sure I think the other big crash was uh, Danny Pedrosa on on, uh, on Andrea uh, on Andrea Dovicioso uh, two races getting taken out twice that's got to be tough for Dovicioso Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's such a critical point. You know, we, we already, you know, mentioned it, that that uh, you know he's riding essentially for his future. Um, and yeah, two things that were you know that were not his fault at all. Um, he could be looking at sitting at, uh, with sixty points in the championship, which would put him just behind Mark Marquez. Um, and yeah, it's it's a real shame for Dovizioso. I think you know the it's difficult to draw too many conclusions about just how good the new Ducati is because we were in the same situation last year. Um, Dovizioso and Ianoni had you know wonderful seasons, and we got the Le Mans. And I remember Rossi saying in Le Mans that we have to factor the Ducatis into the championship race, but you know that never really materialised. So I. Think think we need to maybe reserve judgment until a few more races down the line um but yeah i mean yeah heartbreaking for the videos and you know um we know that he's a he's a, a good guy but is a good guy the way they both kind of handled the incident uh, afterwards i thought was quite commendable yeah yes exactly i mean it was a, it was a, a, a proper gentleman's uh, agreement i think i think the pedrosa incident is actually a, a, a crash you could put down to the tire i think um pedrosa was using the soft yeah he was using the soft front right um, check on the list. Oh, he's, uh, right. He's using the medium front. Right. The 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 the, the problem was the the soft front was really, was locking up in a straight line, but it had 
plenty of feel. Uh, it actually had some feel going around the corner. Uh, the uh, medium had uh, was was a little bit stronger under braking, but wasn't um, uh, wasn't crashing. Or well, it, it didn't it didn't have any feel uh, going under uh, going through corners. So you could you couldn't feel the the, the limit quite so much. Um, uh, Pedrosa said that he locked the front uh, he locked the front wheel under bra- uh, under braking. The bike got out of uh, got out of shape. He tried to pitch it in, and um, it was just moving around too much, and uh, uh, and it went out from under under him, and unfortunately went out from under him straight into the side of Dovizioso. Yeah, and what he said underlined just how how precise you have to be with these tires. He said that there was maybe just a slight little bit more lean angle than he had in previous laps, yeah. and that was the reason why it locked. You know, so we're dealing with you know really small percentages here, yeah, having, yeah. having massive massive differences and massive consequences. I think uh, I think it's fair to say that Mark Marquez probably won the weekend for the, the best performance on the bike. But I think um, I think you guys will agree with me that Danny Pedrosa probably won the weekend for his actions off the bike. Yeah, but again, you saw this in Sepang. While uh, there was a lot of pettiness um, uh, between uh, Rossi, Marquez, Lorenzo, everyone uh, getting all stroppy as we like to say um, stroppy I don't think we have that word in American no I don't think you do have it uh, have it in American but I'm sure you can imagine well you, you just need to uh, uh, imagine a, a teenager who has been who's been grounded that will give you uh, that should give you stroppy <laughs> who's had his Game Boy taken away from him yeah exactly yeah. that's right <laughs> that's right that was there was a lot of stroppiness in it but it was um, it, it was definitely Pedrosa who was um, being the grown up uh, uh, being being the adult in the room there and uh, again it was it was uh, he acted like a like a man, like a, like a gentleman, mm-hmm. um, acknowledging acknowledging his fault, making and his his first concern being for the 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 rider who he has who has who has wronged. I think the last few races have shown a lot of insights into the personalities of the riders because we get the the rider personality for a lot of the racers, which is different than maybe their their private life personality. But I think there's been a few incidents in the last three races where we're beginning to see kind of what they look like more as human beings and less as racers because of, of actions and things that have happened that show kind of maybe their true colors. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good point, Jensen. I think um, the it's just stress. It really is stress. I think there really is an awful lot of stress in the paddock at the moment um, uh, for a number of reasons and for a number of people. And I think this is really starting to... When people are under stress, you you tend to see their real their real character, their real underlying character come out. Yeah, and I think a lot of that stress is is coming down to the silly season, which is what we want to tackle in the next segment. So let's take a quick break, and we'll get right back to it. Hey guys, this is Neil, and this is just a little reminder to follow us. And make sure you're following us on Twitter. That is at Paddock Pass Pod. Thanks. All right, our next item of, of conversation, I think, has to be the, the MotoGP silly season where we're at right now with the riders because obviously things are heating up with uh, Jorge Lorenzo and obviously where he goes for next season. If it's maybe with an Italian manufacturer, uh, I don't maybe. know. Maybe. Yeah. But, yeah. but where he goes you for next season is obviously going to affect the... <laughs> Lorenzo Duprilio. <laughs> that would be amazing. My mind just went, 
But yeah, where he goes for next season is obviously going to have a bit of a cascade and how it affects the rest of the paddock because we're going to see this game of musical chairs lose a seed and that'll affect things down the line. So, um, David, how do you how do you see things playing out? For a start, I uh, I just like to say that I'm absolutely delighted that finally one of the big four at Honda and Yamaha are actually moving because that is it, a refresher isn't it exactly because it, it it opens up so many uh, possibilities uh, so many changes uh, so many perspectives it will also actually bring some uh, uh, i want to say refreshment but i'm not sure that's quite the word but it will actually you know sort of bring some life a little bit of dy- uh, dy- dynamicism uh, a little bit of some dynamics into the uh, into the teams uh, into Yamaha possibly into Honda if something happens there um, but yeah I mean I think uh, before the season started I, I said that you know the, the season was going to revolve around Jorge Lorenzo because um, Valentino Rossi didn't really have a choice where, of where he was going to go um, he was either going to retire or he was going to continue in um, uh, he was going to continue in Yamaha. Uh, Mark Marquez is still young enough to be tied into Honda for the next couple of years at least. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is in at, at that stage in his in his career that uh, he's starting to think a little bit further ahead, starting to think of you know what might happen in the future. Uh, it's really. Yeah, I mean, it, it was obvious that, that he was going to be he was going to be someone who would at least consider changing. So the fact that he's actually signed for Ducati, uh, and there's a lot of good reasons for him to sign for uh, for, for Ducati. He he knows and trusts Gigi Deligne. He's worked with him in in two fifties and one two fives. He has a uh, he can see that the bike is competitive. Um, he has a chance to actually uh, break. Um, uh, you know, starts starts become another rider who has one on two separate uh, on two two separate bikes that's what i was going to ask you when you say looking ahead do you mean looking ahead in his career or looking ahead in his legacy um i'm not sure how much riders actually think about their legacy but they do i think it's more career than legacy i think also um uh, i mean he has this problem he is in the team with valentino rossi um, and it's not uh, like they're really getting on very well. No, exactly. Except, but Valentino Rossi has exactly the same problem. He's in a team with Jorge Lorenzo. They, I mean, the, the two of the greatest riders of all time. Um, they're, they're, they're clearly extremely competitive. Yamaha keep on refusing, resolutely refusing to uh, pick a winner, to, 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 to choose a favourite. I think that actually annoys both of them. Uh, and so the, the, when Lorenzo goes, he will, in exactly the same way as when uh, Valentino went to, uh, went to Ducati in 2000, uh, 2011, uh, when he goes, he will be the number one rider, no questions asked. Um, he will have everything built around him. Um, so that's, I think also it's just that, just the, the feeling that the, that the factory has chosen you, that he's behind you, you are their guy, they're going to help you win a championship. I think that, 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 makes, a, that makes a big change. There's, there's no doubt when he goes to Ducati that he's going to be the number one rider in their eyes. Yeah, well, all right. Who, who, theoretical question, who's as good as Jorge Lorenzo? No, 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 I'm agreeing with you. I'm not asking you. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, right no, there no. with you, buddy. Yeah, but, I mean, the, 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 that's the point. That's the point. At Yamaha, I mean, you can easily make the case that that's, um, uh, Rossi is 
either as you know he's he's got to be about as good as uh, uh, as Lorenzo and then it's just arguing uh, arguing about details I don't think I don't think anyone thinks that um, Andrea Iannone or uh, Andrea Dovicioso outstanding riders that they are are of the level of Jorge Lorenzo yeah they're not going to be looked upon as all-time greats do, do you see this as Jorge's what if I didn't try it moment uh possibly but I'm yeah, possibly but I'm not I don't think so. I don't think he. I don't think he. Or I don't get the, the sense that that's what motivates him. But then I have to say, I find uh, Lorenzo quite difficult to read. Uh, he's a very. Um, he's quite a closed person. He doesn't let. Uh, you know, he doesn't let his 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 true emotions show. I mean, you know, when he's in the box, he gets very very fired up and angry because he just wants to you know be fast. Uh, but you, his true motivation for all these things, I think it's really, I find it really difficult to actually point, pinpoint what it is. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I agree with, with with what you've said there, David. I think you know there is a there is a chance where, or you know, you look at what he did in two thousand and fifteen. It was the strongest season. I think he'd probably. You know, that was the strongest we'd ever seen Lorenzo across a full season. Um, he was fantastic. And there might be a sense of, okay, how do I better that? How do I go one above, um, you know, finishing more or less every single race inside the top three and showing that I was the fastest person in, you know, most of the races in the second, two third, or the two, yeah, the, no, the, sec no. the, the second and third, third of the season. Um, I also think, you know, some of the things that happened over, over winter probably weren't quite to his liking. Um, you know, the yeah. news that, um, that Yamaha had signed a deal with the VR46 Academy to supply their bikes. Also that they had signed a deal with Rossi's um, apparel merchandising company. Um, you know, Lorenzo's probably thinking, what what do I have to do to, to show that, um, you know, that, that I'm the manager be the uh, attention should be focused on 100%. yeah the, the, there is a real sense of frustration there you yeah. really get the sense that there's yeah. that there's a lot of frustration there yeah and i think that's the, uh, the, the that's that's the biggest reason i don't think it's um uh i don't think it's about grandeur i don't even think it's particularly about money i think it's just about just frustration at the way the situation has been handled within yamaha and I think there's, there, I mean, it must just be a natural frustration that when you reach the level that he did last year um, and you produce a ride of the quality that he did to win the championship last year, the attention is completely deflected away from it uh, yeah. and deflected yeah. towards, you know, some other thing that he, for the most part, didn't have a part of. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also a thing where he looks at Ducati what Rossi did at Ducati and we saw in Qatar that you know things were getting quite heated between the pair of them um, we read that Lorenzo's management and Lorenzo indeed himself uh, weren't happy with the announcement or the timing of the announcement that confirmed Rossi was going to stay for two more years in Yamaha I think there is genuinely a part of Lorenzo which thinks I'll go to Ducati and do what you didn't do Valentino yeah exactly I mean uh, and of course the history books will look back and just see um, if let's say uh, Lorenzo goes there and, uh, and wins races and championships. The, the, the history books will show that uh, Lorenzo won on the Ducati and Valentino didn't. Um, that is a complete distortion of what of reality. But then that's what history books do. You know, they, they, all they do is 
show uh, Jorge Lorenzo X points, Valentino Rossi Y points, and the difference is you know whatever it might be. So it's it's the the, the it's a very the, the 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 story is history tends to or the record books tend to strip context from history. Um, I think the 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 interesting thing with Lorenzo's move is who goes to Yamaha. Exactly. Um, I mean, the favourite would be Maverick Vinales, um, who has been riding quite brilliantly at the start of 2016. And I think he showed himself capable of, you know, of reaching alien status. Um, I would say Vinales is probably, probably about the fourth best rider in the world at the moment. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's quite, quite well known that Yamaha are interested in him. Uh, he said that he had offers from more or less every manufacturer on the table that he was considering them. Um, but from what we kind of read over the weekend here in Austin, um, it seems that Suzuki really realized that losing Vinales, you know, who was so integral to that project, would be, represent a total disaster. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with someone close to Yamaha and they implied that um, the, 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 the well that Vinales was very very close to uh, uh, to Yamaha but then Suzuki had stepped up and asked for a lot more money and I know that Suzuki's project was always uh, it was always a very explicit project to have a young incredibly talented rider at uh, Peds together with a an older more experienced rider and the experienced rider does a lot of the, a lot of the development um, work and the the young talent is there just to Win, uh, win races and uh, and championships. And Vinales is clearly, clearly that rider. The way the way Suzuki's strategy was explained to me by by someone close to the team was that they're looking for a long term relationship. It looks to me like almost like they want to cultivate like another Kevin Schwantz, where yeah. there's a rider yeah. that is so linked to the brand that you almost don't separate the two. And that was the investment that was being made in Maverick because he's that young up and coming talent. We've been hearing his name for for how long from from people who know far better than us what yeah. a talented young rider looks like. And now he's finally in the GP series and you know we're seeing this yeah. season how truly talented he is. Yeah, and exactly because mm-hmm. the the thing is the the Suzuki is now uh, it's not at the level of the uh, of the Honda or the Yamaha, but it's really close. It's close enough for uh, Vinales to be able to make the difference. Whereas last year, the bike just was it, the, the the gap with the bike was just too big. Yeah, and I think it's a really clever strategy from Suzuki. Um, Brivio uh, said to me in uh, in Qatar, I think at the final preseason test, that you know Maverick has a chance with Suzuki, as you said, Jensen, to be the next Kevin Schwantz, to be the next Barry, Barry Sheen, a guy that is just so closely associated with uh, with the brand. Um, and you know, and you can argue from from Vinales's point of view, if he does go to Yamaha, is he going to have the same attention um, uh, as he as he gets in, in in Suzuki? Is everything going to be developed? You know quite closely around him um, are all of his demands going to be met like they seem to have been um, in, the, in, the, in recent weeks and in recent months with Suzuki is that going to be the same in Yamaha um, and you know I think with Vinales also there's a he's 21 um, if he does sign with Suzuki for another year or two years he'll still be 23 22, 23 by the time yeah. you know he, he, he potentially moves in the future which you know that's not uh, that's not like a disastrous situation right yeah, there and, and there will be a vacancy in the near future with Yamaha because Valentino um, sure. uh, it, it really does look like this was this will be Valentino's last contract two more years yeah. um, if he does continue it would only be one more year. He's not going to go on for continue for another, for, you know, five or ten years. So you know the, the vacancies, uh, the, the vacancies are coming up. Yeah, and there is 
you know, it's a, it's a clever strategy that the Suzuki have come up with. You know, saying that he can become this icon of the of the brand, but history also um, serves as a reminder that you know the risks of, of sticking with uh, you know you know a Japanese factory that doesn't quite have the same clout and might as HRC and Yamaha. Because you know Schwantz is a rider that could have won more championships than he did. You could even say Barry Sheen after Suzuki after his two championship years. You know. Uh, there were stronger bikes out there after that um, and really it was only when he went to Yamaha I think in, in the, towards the end of his career that he showed himself capable of challenging for the title again in a very competitive sense so you know it's it's difficult to say does this Suzuki MotoGP team strike you to have like the same impetus and the same ethos as the Rizla Suzuki team that we saw with, with Paul Dane does it seem like that that Suzuki corporation back in in Japan has has evolved in their understanding of what to do with a race team or does it feel to you guys like it's the same old thing no it feels uh it it feels to me like there is a more of a commitment from suzuki this time around than there was last time around um uh, the reason that the commitment is there, the uh, additional commitment, is because they were actually out of MotoGP, and I think that really hurt. I think it hurt the the uh, it, it hurt the. It hurt the feelings of Suzuki, if you see what I mean. It, it sort of it, it 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 felt as as a blow to their uh, their corporate identity, their identity around racing. Um, they felt they had to be in Grand Prix racing. They always had been in Grand Prix racing, and they just took it for granted. Uh, and then when the when it just became simply too expensive for them to race, uh, and they stepped out of racing, that was when they actually uh, walked away and walked away and regrouped. Well, I think that's a, a really important thing to, to understand, too, because we have to go back in time and understand 2008, 2009 with the recession and how that affected Suzuki in particular. I mean, they basically shut down their assembly line. They basically left bikes that, were, that weren't selling at the dealerships to sit, and you started to see dealerships get stacked up with bikes. And just now we're starting to see, you know, we're seeing the 2017, we'll have a new Gixxer 1000. Presumably after that, we'll see a 750, a 600. We're just now starting to see Suzuki kind of wake up from the fog of the recession, one of the last manufacturers in the industry really to do so. So I can understand like that maybe the, the accountants finally won out over on the, on the passion project that was MotoGP and the brand identity that was MotoGP that was maybe being pushed from different sides of the company. Yeah, I think the one thing uh, which the, especially these especially these new rules uh, the big difference is with spec electronics um, uh, the, 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 the it's not a level, level playing field it's never going to be a level playing field because one team will always have the best guys um, one team will always be able to afford or uh, one factory will always be able to afford more than another factory um, but the fact is the, the fact that that uh, Honda or Yamaha can't throw more resources into developing smarter software. Um, they can only only optimize what they have. Means that the differences are capped at a particular level. Um, there will never be massive differences in the performance of the electronics. And Suzuki's problem was, were always the electronics. They, they they simply didn't have the development team to uh, to match the uh, ingenuity and uh, the 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 power of the uh, electronics systems uh, developed and used by Yamaha and Honda. And so that makes a difference. Um, uh, it also saves uh, Honda or sorry. It also saves Suzuki a lot of money um, because they, which they can then pour into the chassis, put into the uh, put into the engine. Um, it makes the it makes the resources 
much, much more manageable, I think. Yeah, and we saw, you know, writers' comments would, would suggest as much. Um, both Alicia and Maverick have said that the electronics they're running now, um, as of the end of round three in 2016, they're on some levels more sophisticated and more advanced than what they were using in 2015. Whereas you listen to what Lorenzo Rossi say, it's like taking a step back, you know, five, six years um, to what they were using in 2010 or 11. Um, uh, you know, I think there's also, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, there's been a very... Um, very clear-sighted way of working at Suzuki. You know, at the end of 2015, there were two clear areas that um, where they suffered, you know, the obvious power deficit. They didn't have the seamless transmission. They worked excessively hard over over winter. Um, Tom McKean, who's been with the Suzuki team for, I don't know how long, but quite a, a substantial amount of time, was saying that, you know, he hadn't really seen seen the like of this before with you know the, the effort they were putting in um, and they managed to you know they managed to beef up that engine give it extra power without losing you know the strong points of the bike and you know the, the, the smooth um, sweet handling nature of, uh, of the chassis um, and you know now they have the uh, the fully seamless gearbox um, we've seen from results from speed we saw it at Austin Alish joining Maver- uh, Maverick um, inside the top six you know you're looking at a very strong package there at the moment and you know it's. I'm sure it's enough. The performances that they've, they've put in so far this year, I'm sure, are enough to make Maverick at least consider staying. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that Maverick said uh, this weekend again is, that, is there's a lack of grip, and he he did say very pointedly, it's a problem we've had. You know, for uh, I've been waiting for them to fix for over a year, which is uh, a little bit painful. But uh, uh, you know, horsepower, uh, gearbox rear grip will be the next will be in the next area they tackle and the thing about the Suzuki about the Vinales deal and why Suzuki are going to have up to their offer to Vinales is if they have invested in Vinales or they believe Vinales is going to be their next their next brand icon you're not going to let your project fall apart for the sake of one or two million euros, which is you know uh, maybe four or five percent of the uh, uh, of the uh, of the entire MotoGP budget, because you'd be throwing sort of forty or fifty. I, I do not know exactly what uh, what Suzuki's MotoGP budget is, but based on what I do know about other factories, it's got to be you know in the region somewhere between thirty-five and fifty-five, sixty million. Uh, very, 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 very uh, broad. You're not going to throw away, shall we say, for the sake of argument, forty-five million just for the sake of one million in extra salary for uh, uh, for the rider who you believe is your future. Absolutely. You're talking about wasting pennies to make dollars. And yeah. it, it totally makes sense. And, and, and someone pointed out to me, you look at what the title sponsor of Suzuki's MotoGP program, and it's X-Star, and that's their oil. And it's not like we're sitting here arguing over, okay, well, let's get the title sponsor for four or five million and that sort of thing. They're looking, approaching at it from, this is a product that we're going to put in every dealership that sells Suzuki's. Yeah. This is a product, this is a marketing campaign that is larger than just this MotoGP program. And, you know, its ramifications are tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. So it makes the argument stronger to say, okay, well, Maverick needs a couple more million to make him stay to keep this package on track. That's a, do- a drop in the bucket. So let's let's just get the deal done and have it and move on from here. Yeah, um, the, the, the exactly. So, if Lorenzo was the first sort of domino which had to fall, we what we don't know is which what the next domino is that it's just fallen against. But we know it's going to be a couple dominoes. Yeah, the, yeah, oh yeah, we know that there's there's a whole bunch of dominoes going to uh, going to fall. I mean, we, if Vinales goes to 
uh, if Inyalis goes to uh, Yamaha, then that's sorted out. But then who do you, who takes his place at Suzuki? Uh, there's also talk about um, uh, whether Danny Pedrosa will stay at uh, uh, stay at Honda or not, because that, that's that is a very very it's a far from settled question. Yeah. Um, we have Alex Rince coming up. Alex Rince is a big ticket. Alex Rince is refusing, basically refusing to take a satellite ride. Uh, he won't take um, the what Yamaha's original plan was to put Rince into the Tech 3 team uh, in the seat held by uh, um, Bradley. Paul, no, 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 uh, Paul Espargaro, oh, because the, the, the yeah. Paul Espargaro oh, is, uh, is a Yamaha factory rider, Yamaha have the right to place one rider with them, um, uh, with the Tech 3, uh, with, with the Tech 3 team. Um, that is, if they don't, if they don't do that, well, Rince saw what happened to Paul and, uh, you know, Paul has just sat there for, what, three, four years and uh, and the Yamaha team has just stayed there and now it looks like there's going to be a vacancy and they're still not going to take Paul, they're going to take, uh, they're, they're going to take someone else. So I think that, that has scared Rins off. Rins wants to go to a factory team, so Rins could maybe go to Honda, he could maybe go to Suzuki, but we could maybe even go to Ducati. Sure. Um, it's, everything's open. I just want yeah. everyone to know that Maverick Vinales has ripped a wheelie down pit lane while we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, he's heard what we're saying about him. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, in, in Argentina, we heard, um, we heard that uh, Iannone has an offer on the table from Suzuki. Um, which uh, you know, which may be a, a kind of negotiating ploy. Yeah, to, because to because the person we heard well, we heard that from was his his manager, <laughs> who is one of the uh, most. Uh, yes, well, just the word, say the words carefully here, David. Savvy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. He's a he, he's very good at expert at um, spreading information and uh, disinformation. Sure, sure. Uh, that's the that's the that's the trick with lies is yeah. you have to mix them with truth. Yes, yeah, exactly. You can't just tell lies. You actually have to. Uh, yeah, you, you can't predictably tell lies. You have to. Uh, you have to be unpredictable in what you choose to, to tell. So, yeah, the the fact that uh, the, the fact that Carlo Panat it's Carlo Panat who is telling everyone. Sure. That he and only has a uh, has a deal on the table, but then again, uh, it's entirely believable. It's entirely plausible that uh, the Suzuki would look at Ian Oni because Ian Oni is clearly not quite Vinales talent, but clearly you know pretty close, c- clearly capable of winning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, outside outside the, the the top four of the movie star Repsol guys uh, and Vinales, you would say Ian Oni is the the next best, the next guy, yeah, the next guy along there. So it would make sense for him to to you know have a, at least interest from. Uh, from Suzuki, yeah, and then we've got KTM coming in, which makes uh, uh, which, which adds a little bit of spice as well, uh, because I mean, obviously Bradley Smith has signed. I think that's a fantastic deal. Uh, he's a great development rider. He's, I mean, since Casey Stoner left, Bradley Smith is the person that I go and ask if I want to understand something because he's so he uh, understands um, so well and can explain. So well, he can explain. He can explain to you exactly what uh, what's what's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's obviously going to be a second seat in that garage, which uh, which should also be should be interesting and, and the subject of uh, of quite intense speculation. Um, I've heard that uh, the pit buyer, the the head of KTM uh, of their recent effort, um, he very much sees Bradley as the lead rider in that team, um, which would suggest that if they are going for a second rider, it would more than likely be someone from from Moto Two, perhaps. Yeah, um, but. The, the, 
but the, the thing is, yeah, who do you take from Moto2? Uh, because I believe Jonas Fol- I know that Jonas Folger is um, Jonas Folger. You would think would be the the, the obvious choice, but I, I know that Hervé Pontral is very very keen on uh, uh, very very keen on Jonas Folger. Really trying to get into him. I know he's uh, Folger's management. He's very keen to try and get him into uh, Tech Three. Uh, so yeah, I mean, then you look at who else is in in Moto2. We've got Zarco. Zarco has apparently got a contract with Suzuki, although yeah. the, the details are still very 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 vague and where he's going to be racing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we Could have, it be a satellite team? Could it be the factory team? We're not sure. Exactly. He's, we have. Yeah, he's supposed to be racing the Suzuki 8R as well this year, right? And that and that's something that I think like we've we've overlooked in all of this is is at what point Suzuki will bring in a satellite team, or will there, there or someone will push the issue of a satellite Suzuki team and see that grid fill out more with factory. I think style I, bikes. I, I, the impression I got um, from uh, talking to people this weekend was that uh, there will be a Suzuki satellite team next year. Um, uh, one bike. They don't want to do what more than one bike. They can manage one bike. They don't really know how to do it. Suzuki, I think it's been a very. I've, I've, I don't. I'm not even sure Suzuki have ever had a satellite team. Uh, so in the days of the 500s, they just used to sell uh, RG 500s to, to privateers, but that was an, a, a completely different structure and a completely different system. So um, uh, they literally have zero experience with satellite team. The only thing that we have is um, David Abrivio, who was. Uh, Used to be uh, the manager of the of the uh, of Yamaha, um, and so yeah, Yamaha. He must have had some experience of uh, of, of satellite teams over at over at Yamaha. Well, I think I think I think the best way to describe Suzuki's entire operation right now is they're they're relearning how to do this. Yeah. They're, 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 the rules have obviously changed, and MotoGP has obviously evolved since when they were last here. But it seems to me their their re their new approach is something that's new for them. And they're learning it as they go along, so they're they're very cautious not to bite off more than they can chew in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because the, 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 there are considerable costs involved in uh, in having a satellite team, or in running, or rather in supplying a satellite team. Um, and with a price cap on the uh, on the bikes, uh, it's it, it leaves them it leaves factories with less opportunities to actually uh, uh, to actually make money off of the bikes but then again i was speaking to the team manager of, of of one satellite team and he says he wasn't expecting uh the bike the the bikes to actually get very much cheaper it's not it's not as if there's suddenly going to be a 30 percent cut in the uh, in the cost of or in the price that they're that there's being charged it's just that they will find different ways of extracting the uh the the the, the difference from them you know yeah. i don't know if i i don't know if i if i believe that it just just looking at the market, like from an economical or from an economics point of view uh, of what's happening to MotoGP, we've gone from two manufacturers who have a legitimate chance of winning. And now Ducati's coming on and you're just going to say, yeah, there's three. And well, now we're seeing Suzuki come in and the bike's looking very good. And then we're going to have KTM come in and, and maybe Aprilia's racing effort in the next year or two can can take the next evolution that it needs. I think that that's something to watch because um, uh, I spoke to Stefan Bradl this, uh, uh, this weekend and he was actually really quite optimistic. He said the bike's really changed. They made a big step in, in electronics. The, the, the 10th place that he got in Austin was a... Um, uh, he felt it really felt like a tenth place. It wasn't that a whole bunch of people crashed out in front of him, even though some people crashed out in front of him. He really felt like it was a lot more conf- uh, he was a lot more confident. You know, the bike was doing the things that he were that he, he wanted to do. So, uh, Aprilia's 
uh, operation looks bad, but uh, I think you know a year from now, really, it's it's going to look it's going to look a lot different. So yeah, as you say, and that only adds the argument, then that's going to give. Uh, satellite teams or private teams, however you want to call them these days, more of an option on what machinery they're going to use. When there's competition, prices go down. That's just basic supply and demand. Thank you, Adam Smith. Yeah, and that was one of the that was one of the uh, the one of the reasons to put in uh, to put in place the rule that uh, every factory had to supply a, uh, a, a, a they, they had to supply a satellite team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and just to go back to what you were saying about Aprilia, there. I mean, last in the last few years, they've had more or less a lot of their engineers in the World Superbike paddock operating um, and working with that bike, which is, you know, a mini MotoGP bike in certain respects. Um, there's no, at the moment, no official sport um, for the for the IOTA team that is running the Prelude World Superbikes at the moment with DeAngelis and Savadoria's riders. Those technicians that were in World Superbike before are now here. Uh, you know, Prelude have expanded their their operation, their, their, their MotoGP team is bigger. They have more electric, uh, electronics engineers. They're taking this very seriously. And, you know, that those orders are coming from, you know, Piaggio, that they want this to succeed and they're putting the resources in to make sure it succeeds. Um, so I, I can I can see, you know, that bike um, that bike coming along, in, you know, quite considerably in the next in the next year as well. Yeah, I mean, Sam, Lowe's decision to sign a three-year contract with Grassini doing one year in Moto2 and then uh, two years in MotoGP is looking smarter and smarter mm. as, we're, uh, uh, as we go along because the bike should be an awful lot better next year. Mm. Um, uh, which brings us back to who do you bring uh, bring up from uh, from Moto2 apart from Alex Rins, uh, Folger maybe, Sam Lowe's already, uh, already, already going taken. up. Yeah, and Zarco potentially already taken too. I think we should probably take a, a quick break and then when we come back talk about uh, exactly what you're saying. Moto2 and Moto3, look at their past races and then see what cream is rising to the top. Hey guys, Jensen Beeler here. And when I'm not riding on asphalt and rubber, I'm talking about street bikes on the Two Enthusiast podcast. And even though our tiny little show doesn't quite have the following of the supreme effort that has been put on here at the Paddock Pass podcast with uh, David, Neil, Steve, and Tony, and the rest of the gang, uh, we are slaughtering you on iTunes reviews, 76 to 45. So I'm just going to throw down the challenge to the Paddock Pass podcast listeners to get out their phones, if you're listening to the show on iTunes, to give it a, a rating and a review. Please give us your constructive feedback, what you like about the show what you want us to improve, what you want to see from us coming down the line. Uh, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps other listeners find the show. And um, maybe it'll give proof that uh, MotoGP fans know how to use uh, electronics uh, in this technological day and age. So that's the, that's the challenge from the Tune Enthusiast Show. And we'll uh, see you out there. All right, let's uh, get to the last section of the show. We want to talk about uh, the Moto2 and Moto3 paddock real briefly to give you guys an insight on the uh, riders that are coming up through the ranks and obviously the racing action that they're doing on the uh, track. Neil, we'll come back to you since you're in Argentina. Why don't you break down what was happening there for us? Um, Argentina was was interesting. Um, 
the uh, there was a, a shower in the morning. Um, the track was drying out. It, a dry line was developing at the start of the Moto Three race and had pretty much developed fully for the for the Moto Two race. Um, there were obviously still damp patches around. Um, so the Moto Three race was 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 quite strange. Um, it was uh, was was genuinely you know quite baffling and quite puzzling, mainly for the speed of uh, of a young uh, a young Malaysian rookie who came into the, the series um, in Qatar uh, by the name of Carol Powie, um, who was just sensationally fast, um, unbelievably fast and brave and ballsy. Well, what, what amazed me was that the only person who could keep up with him in the first sort of two or three laps was Livio Loy. And Livio Loy had gone out on uh, on wets. So he was on wets uh-huh. and he couldn't go as fast as uh, Powie did on slicks, which was in, in those under those circumstances, in those conditions, just he was pulling out two... Three, I think it was four seconds a lap up until about lap seven. And by then he was 20 seconds in front, you know. So from there on, it was just, uh, it was just about managing the race. Um, yeah, quite an exciting talent. Um, he was the Honda Asia Cup uh, talent winner, I think, in 2014. He moved to uh, to Europe um, a year later and did a did a season in the, the FIM Junior World Championship, which used to be the Spanish CEV series. Um, within a couple of races, was on the podium. Um, you know, with limited experience on a Moto Three machine, on a Grand Prix machine. Um, so he's he's definitely a very impressive talent. Um, one of many that, that that are in the the Moto Three series this year. And um, so that was quite exciting. And then you know, in Moto Two, I think we've seen really the you know the, the three best riders and the three favourites for the championship establishing themselves in the in the last uh, in the last two races. Um, I know Alex Rins was off the podium in Argentina, um, but I think he showed the speed there. Um, um, really, to you know, to suggest that he could have been third. Had yeah, because, he... because Rins had a shocker in in uh, in in Argentina. He had a really, really he struggled all throughout practice and only really sort of pulled it together during the race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was. Um, I think he had a he had a poor start. Uh, he he you know he just wasn't um, he wasn't able to to deliver the the four leaders that the, the broke away at the start of that um, at the start of that race. Um, but then you know once he made his way through the fight for fifth, I think it was at that time, he started setting fastest laps and fastest laps and fastest laps and showing that you know had he been a little more braver and ballsier at the start, uh, he could have you know he could have been on the podium there. Um, and really, his performance in Austin was just fantastic. It was just a you know a real display of um, you know, a measured approach that we know Rins is always capable of, but also just a cool head under pressure because he was put under enormous pressure continuously from Sam Lowe's, yeah. who was just pressing him the whole race, and Rins really didn't put a foot wrong. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it was an impressive race from both riders really but from from Rince just for the sheer control he exercised uh, but also from Lowe's because um, normally I, I think he said afterwards normally what he would have done he could see that he could have got close and if it, if he could have tried to could have tried to pass Rince but he would have had to take an awful lot of, uh, of risk and probably would have ended up crashing and he said you know last year what, what I would have done was uh, was tried to pass him crash and then you would have found me crying in my motorhome um, <laughs> But not this time. This time, you know, he was he was willing to settle, and it pays off. He's leading the championship. Exactly, and I think if you look at the top three riders in the championship now, um, they are separated by three points. Yeah. So after three races, uh, you have four. I think maybe it's, it's four. four. Maybe it's yeah, four. Yeah, exactly. But sure. it's 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 nothing. It's tuppence. Yeah, exactly. So going back into Europe in the European season, you know, I think we're going to see um, quite an intensive three-way battle for that Moto Moto Two Championship, which should be really really interesting. Yeah, and also thrown into that is 
Luti, Egata, Folger, F- uh, Folger uh, Nakagami. They're all riders. Morbidelli. Morbid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Morbidelli. Of the all riders who are clearly capable of actually mixing it up at the front. They don't seem to have the consistency to you know be there week in week out the the, the, the same way that the, the, the top three are. But um, uh, yeah, I mean that they're clearly really uh, they're clearly fast riders, and and I think they're going to end up playing a really big role in the championship. Just you know by the sheer stubbornness of getting in the way and uh, at crucial points and stealing podiums and stealing points yeah and, and what we saw in Argentina was also um, after quite a slow start uh, through pre-season testing um, also in the race in Qatar the whole race weekend you just never got the impression that Joanne Zarco was really uh, you know reaching the levels that he had done in 2015 I think you saw in, in Argentina that you know that was just Zarco at his very best the two fastest laps of the race set on the, the final two laps you know getting to the front keeping cool and then saving something, having something in reserve for those final two laps for that last push where he's just able to like crucially break the, you know, his pursuers. Um, you know, we saw that, you know, for all his troubles over the off season, adjust, adjusting to the 2016 Calyx frame, that he's going to be, you know, very formidable again um, this year in his title defence. Yeah, I mean, speaking of dominant wins, Romano Fanati. Mm, exactly, Romano Fanati. Yeah, exactly. I, I was I was looking at this. Um, we were speaking to to Steve actually, who was here on on Sunday for the race, and we were trying to work out. You know, had Fanati ever put in a performance as dominant? And although he won his first race by something like thirty seconds in Jerez in two thousand and twelve, yeah, but it, it was wet. That it was, was really it was really tri- yeah. yeah, it was really tricky conditions. Considerably wet. Each of his other uh, each of his other uh, triumphs had been had been won by you know less than you know less than a tenth of a second or a tenth two tenths. A second, I think. Yeah, by beating a small group, basically. Yeah, by by basically getting his elbows out and you know being being the most aggressive. Um, Yeah, and this was this was fantastic. This is um, this performance that we know Finetti's capable of, just we haven't really seen before in the past. And um, it's uh, yeah, it it should be interesting, you know, because I think when you look at the look at the guys that we expect to be fighting for the title this year, you have Nico Antonelli, who is fast but still has the occasional erratic t- tendency as we saw in Valencia at the end of last year. We saw in the race, indeed, here in Austin. Um, we also have guys like Brad Binder, Jorge Navarro, Cuadraro, and um, if you look at those guys, I guess you could include Ania Bastianini in that list. Uh, Bastianini's won one Grand Prix. The other guys have never won a Grand Prix before. Um, and Fanati has, you know, a considerable advantage in hand um, in, in those stakes so you have to think that if he could just get up a little bit of, a little head of steam uh, much in the same way as Danny Kent did at this race last year um, the experience he has in the class the, the obvious talent that he has um, you know would 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 kind of make him stand out above above the others. Yeah, the, the only bugbear has always been consistency because you know you, you, one week he'll win and then the next week he'll be sort of thirteenth or thirteenth or fourteenth. Yeah, and what, what I thought was interesting about Fanati indeed in two thousand and fifteen was that you know he's always struggled for consistency in the past. But what we saw in two thousand and fifteen was that okay his results weren't consistent, but he was consistently in the fight for the lead and he wasn't able to he wasn't able to do what we thought he was brilliant at in previous seasons which was use his brain in the final laps and find his way to the front of a group there was many occasions where he was in the fight for the lead but got shuffled back to fifth or sixth in the last laps wasn't able to keep his cool wasn't able to judge when to go uh, or how to do that indeed um so yes so being able to consistently be at the front and use his head in an intelligent manner 
I think will be will be interesting to see. The win was also very important for the team because uh, we had this whole thing, this sudden rumour that uh, the Sky VR46 team was going to uh, take the spare slot in MotoGP, um, uh, which the team immediately panicked. There were phone calls from Milan where the uh, where Sky TV have their headquarters uh, asking them, you know, what, what the bloody hell's going on? Who's been talking about this? Um, uh, so they immediately uh, convened a little press conference and we all rushed over to talk to Pablo Nieto who denied, said, no, we're not going to go to uh, to MotoGP next year. It's two bikes in Moto2, uh, two bikes in Moto3 and one bike in Moto2 with Romano Fanati. Um, so uh, actually having a Fanati win uh, Nobody's talking about the uh, the, the Sky VR46 uh, uh, MotoGP sort of uh, uh, rumour anymore uh, anyway. So, yeah, it, it definitely really helped. One thing which I found really, I think a lot of people found confusing, Pauwi wins last week and then a week later and really in really much better conditions. I think he was 20th or 22nd. Uh, it was a long way down the field. Yeah, he was. Although I think um, it's difficult to judge. I think he was um, maybe last in the qualifying grid. We saw that um, rain started following soon into the qualifying session and it caught several riders out including Nico Antonelli who I think you know, was thirty first on the grid or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Pauly had a rubbish qualifying, terrible qualifying, and then you know it's a new circuit, and it's. I mean, this yeah. is a one of the longest circuits on the calendar. Um, quite difficult to learn. Um, you know, I think we can maybe excuse him on this. Uh, yeah. on, on this <laughs> well, let, let him off this time. Let him off this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, a great win by Fanati, um, but uh, a shame for um, Binder and Navarro. It really looked like Navarro had this, um, but. He was just outclassed by uh, by Fanati on the day, and again, been all of these. It was one of those things, you know. The win, the, the, there's a win there. Yeah, the win really is coming. It's coming soon. Exactly. Yeah, and Binder, I think, said at the end of the at the end of the press conference that it was the worst he had felt on a bike in quite a long time, and he was still able to he was still able to salvage fourth, uh, third place, a podium finish. Um, so yeah, I think um, you know Binder is a guy that is, in certain respects, flattered to deceive in the past. I think he'll be in the, in the title fight at some point too. I think that'll do us uh, for this episode, uh, Neil and David. Uh, it's been a pleasure being on the show as always. You guys are knocking it out of the park. It's a shame you don't have as many uh, reviews on iTunes as the Two Enthusiasts podcast. But That's that because all... all of our readers have got to, or all of our listeners have more sense to uh, than to use the abomination which is iTunes. <laughs> eh, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> But um, I will thank our... How dare you our... say that in the land of Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck in through airport security this time, David. But Sacrilege. I will say thank you for all, all the listeners for listening to the Paddock, Paddock Pass podcast. It is it is quite hard to say, David, It isn't is it? quite hard. It's you not gotta, just you me. you got to really warm up the cheeks on it. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. You need to do a bit of yakking before mm, one. Yeah, yeah. So thank you all for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. Oh, that's professional right there is what it is. <laughs> All right, boys, it's been great seeing you this week, and uh, we'll see you next time soon, yeah? All right, yep, thank thanks, you. Steve. Mm. I'm recording now. That is just so cool. All right, give it uh, five, ten seconds for noise. Yep. Can we do that, like, camp clamp that we always do online? Just, just do it. Just, yeah. just practice yeah. now. Three, <laughs> two, one. <laughs> Fucking hell, that's worse than at home. <laughs> You guys are so bad. I love when I get the tape and it's just <laughs> seconds apart. <laughs> then you line them up and you realize, oh no, the audio isn't isn't level. Right. No. All right. Yeah, we need quiet to uh, quiet on the set to get the noise reduction software in, in place.
do you know what the uh, do you know what the rate is? Um, uh, can you remember the results? Because I yeah. can't. Okay, yeah. good. I'll let you do most of the talking, and then I'll just agree with you. Uh, okay. <laughs> so same as it ever was then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Zinger. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs>